gun has a subject and an object, that's a trigger word, pun intended. Try to discuss guns with anyone, and almost certainly you'll get polarized opinion and inflexible thinking. My guest today did discuss guns on the streets of his town when crowds gathered downtown in anticipation of Antifa last year. He's going to tell us a little bit about what he found. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 144. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, Dan Breed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Pick up a copy of my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort for Dad. He'll love the thorough procedures and explanations about what to do next. Check out the introduction on my page, culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort, and also order your copy from the Amazon link. David Kirk West is my guest today. David is quite vocal about guns in a positive sense. He has a YouTube channel, Buck the System, and posts there about guns, gun ownership, and much more. As you'll hear, I don't wish to pursue a Second Amendment angle, but I do wish to pursue a moral angle for guns. I also make mention of his recording room, which is the image used for today's show notes page image. Good morning, David. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hi, right, thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, before we get into our topic today, which is going to be guns, the woo, uh, will you please give us a bit of your bio and some of your knowledge in this area of guns and as a gun owner? Oh, oh boy. Well, um, I've I've been very into firearms, uh, sort of my whole life. I guess I started shooting a lot more seriously when I was like a, a teenager, but I, I grew up around guns. You know, my, uh, uh, my dad hunted, owned, uh, you know, a, a number of guns, um, and pretty much my whole family hunted. So I've been going out and plinking with, uh, 22s, you know, since I was a little kid. And then as I got older, started hunting. And then as I got, uh, kind of got, you know, into my teenage years and started working a little bit and having a little bit of my own money, I started buying, um, you know, more defensive oriented firearms. The first, the first one that I ever bought was I bought an M1 carbine from one of my teachers when I was like 16 or I think maybe it was 17 at the time, but, uh, bought an M1 carbine. That was kind of my first semi-automatic, uh, um, rifle that I owned. And then for my 18th birthday, I bought an AR-15 and this was, you know, this was back in 2008. So this was before everyone owned an AR-15 and before really hardly anyone outside of hardcore gun circles knew what they were. The Clinton assault weapons ban had only sunsetted a couple years earlier and people had once again been able to easily buy ARs and the like. So uh, I've been into guns for a long time. I joined the military straight out of high school. I became an army ranger. 
and uh, <laughs> ended up realizing that uh, we were not the good guys in a lot of the conflicts we were involved in. So uh, eventually got out of the military pretty disgruntled about uh, the government. That turned me very much into a libertarian. Before that, I had been a, a, a relatively traditional conservative with some libertarian leanings. But that experience being in the military and realizing we were the bad guys and that if my country was invaded, I'd be fighting back too. Uh, that, that definitely turned me into more of an anarcho-capitalist libertarian than the, you know, just sort of basic conservative with libertarian leanings that I had been before. Uh, and it also got me even more into firearms. So now, uh, you know, quite, quite a few years later, um, just own a lot of guns and I like to shoot a lot. So one of the things that uh, you, uh, you, you've mentioned your activity in Liberty Pursuits and also in Firearm Pursuits, uh, this is, it would be easy to do a 2A episode. I'm going to avoid that because I don't think that, I don't think a podcast is enough and I don't think that there's a way to unpolarize the sides and that's not something I'm interested in retrying. That's, I think there's more interesting conversations to be had. Uh, you have a YouTube channel and a show called Buck the System. Now, you record that in a, a very interesting-looking little room, and I want you to just talk about that room for just a minute because it has a it, – it visually, it's a very powerful image to see what this room is. So <laughs> I've built it up a lot, so now you got to deliver. Uh, yeah, obviously no one can see it right now, and this morning I'm not even in it because we were having some technical difficulties with uh, Zencaster here. But I normally record all of my video content from um, a gun room or probably more appropriately gun closet slash um, audio booth. So and I say closet instead of room because it's, it's only about five feet by five feet. Uh, so it's not particularly big, but it's definitely a lot bigger than your average gun safe. And I just sort of have uh, uh, racks of guns on the wall. Um, I think I have uh, places for 20 vertically uh, uh, placed rifles on the wall. And then I have four or five more of my, uh, my more elaborate rifles that are mounted kind of horizontally on the wall where you can really get a good look at them. And then I have a wall full of handguns and I have a, a, a wall with a giant uh, steel rack that holds a bunch of ammo cans to store ammunition. And I've uh, overflowed far beyond what that can actually hold and have ammunition just kind of stacked all over uh, other places in my house. But uh, it's, it's a nice setup. Um, and I, I also have a setup, you know, as a, as a kind of a live streaming studio. So I have a nice camera and a nice microphone and all the interfaces necessary to link that up to my PC, which is on the other side of the wall in my office. So it's a, uh, it's a pretty cool setup. Yeah. If you ever want to check it out, look up Buck the System on YouTube and you should find my YouTube channel pretty well. And I do a lot of, you know, long podcast type episodes broadcast from inside that, that little gun studio. I will put a link to your YouTube channel on today's show notes page, which will be culinarylibertarian.com slash 143. 
because the because visual medium is interesting and is powerful, one of the at least from from my perspective, one of the things that's interesting or that that happens when I see you in that room, I I have to sort of think that wow, this is what I can see in front of me. What's what can I not see? And of course, I don't. Think, now that's kind of funny. That's a weird way to say those two words together. What do you say? I don't think that there's a wall immediately behind the camera. I think that there must be a twin of this amount of stuff, guns, and who knows? He's got houses and tanks over there. So it's, I, that's probably not really true, although I don't think you'd object. So it's sort of interesting <laughs> what, how, how our mind fills in the blanks of the things we can see. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's our imagination. So, there, it creates a powerful image, and I think the, the various people for their own dispositions are going to envision a variety of different things, and that's fine. Let them envision that. Uh, we're coming up in uh, – so you and I actually happen to live in the same town, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, about a year ago, we're coming up on an anniversary of a of a thing that didn't happen. So um, right. there was – there was a, a lot of talk about Black Lives Matters and or Antifa coming coming here. Who the hell comes here um, for something? I don't even know what they want. Why would you come to this town? But they were said to come. So you took your camera and your and you you geared up and you went down to talk to some folks. Now, as it happens, now you tell the story, but there was actually literally a division of sides so talk about what what didn't happen what should have what was supposed to happen and then i'm really interested in what did you find out from the people who finally let their guard down and actually spoke about their concerns because having concerns is valid both sides have concerns and there's nothing wrong with having concerns it's when we get to this political soundbite polarization that nothing happened. So what did you learn? So just to kind of set the stage so that everybody listening knows exactly what we're talking about. Uh, as we're recording this, I believe it's May 26th. We just a couple days ago, in the last four or five days here, we hit the one year anniversary of uh, the, the murder of George Floyd. And... Um, you know, some, some people seem to take issue with even calling it the murder of George Floyd, but Derek Chauvin's been convicted of murder. So that's, you know, the, it's pretty accurate to call it that. But so we just hit the one year anniversary of that. And of course, in the uh, uh, late spring, early summer of 2020, that inspired the biggest wave of Black Lives Matter protests and often riots that we have ever seen. So I think it was, uh, I think it might've been like Memorial Day weekend last year. It was like May 29th, 30th, 31st, that sort of a time frame. That was when there was a giant, you know, nationwide protests everywhere. Every, every little podunk town even had, you know, dozens of people coming out to protest, um, just like our town did. And in a lot of places. I mean, there, there were news articles. We weren't the only ones that had this happen. There were news articles that I saw about this happening in small towns everywhere. 
rumors of um, uh, Antifa protesters being bussed in to burn down the downtown of whatever little, you know, small town you were in. Um, they spread like wildfire all over at least kind of the Western states. And so in response to all these protests, there were large counter protests that uh, sprung up. And so you'd have two sides. Often in these smaller towns, the sort of Black Lives Matter side was a lot smaller than the people who had uh, showed up just to protect local businesses and, and you know, protect their town from what they thought was going to be a massive riot kind of burning everything down. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because there was sort of a comedy of errors that led to this, you know, you'll hear to this day, you will hear a lot of the local leftist activists in our area start bashing on all the right-wingers who showed up with guns that night. Um, and unfairly, a lot of times, in my opinion. Um, I, I mean, it was it was a pretty impressive response. I would say there was probably, probably somewhere between 50 and 100 people sort of on the probably closer to a hundred. It was pretty big that night. A uh, hundred or so people on the sort of black lives matter left wing side of the equation, if you will. And then the entire downtown area was just bristling with people. You know, we're talking four or 500 people potentially that showed up. Most of them armed, um, you know, with, openly carried rifles, openly carried handguns, all just some people didn't even have guns. They would just have like baseball bats. I mean, it was, it was pretty intense. Uh, the, the leftists will of course try to claim that they were being like intimidated and, and, you know, violently attacked. And that's not exactly true. Um, there was like a couple drunk people and always people who didn't have guns or anything who would like run across the street and get belligerent and get immediately arrested. So, other than that, there really wasn't any violence or anything to speak of. But what was interesting was that, you know, the leftists kind of act like, oh, everybody was just paranoid conspiracy theorists, thought Antifa was coming, but nothing was happening. And it is true that nothing happened, and I'm sure nothing was ever going to happen. But the thing is, is that there was a lot more reason to think that it might than these people will, you know, give sort of the right wing side credit for. So... I have a, a friend here in town who I won't say exactly what he does, but he owns uh, some businesses involved in like communications and infrastructure. Because of that, he was invited along with uh, quite a few other people in the um, community who own or you know maintain vital necessary infrastructure to come to some sort of a meeting with like the, you know, the, the police de department and the county sheriff and all that stuff. And they were flat out told in this meeting um, that, that the, the local law enforcement had received warnings from like the Department of Justice or the Department of Homeland Security, something like that, FBI, that, that sort of thing. They had received warnings from federal law enforcement agencies that there had been threats from, uh, you know, Antifa type rioters 
that they were going to come here and burn down downtown. Now, this may well have been, you know, for all we know, this could be literal white supremacists calling in and making threats to sort of frame other people. I, who knows? But the point is, this all started with like <laughs> sort of credible authority figures saying that this might happen. And then where the kind of comedy of errors parts comes in, you know, I remember that day I was hearing rumors from people saying things like, oh, there's, there's a busload of Antifa rioters showing up. They're at Walmart right now. And all the left-wingers are acting like this is absurd. Well, after the fact, I did a lot of digging to try to get to the bottom of what had happened. And it turns out there absolutely was a bus uh, with a bunch of Black Lives Matter graffiti all over it that was in town. I, I have a picture of this. I, I was able to track it down. It was absolutely at our local Walmart. Um, you can tell from some of the restaurants that are in, uh, in the back of it and stuff. The funny part is that this bus, um, it, it looks like it was probably had at one point been like a large tour bus, like the kind of bus um, that maybe like a sports team might rent to go on the road to a tournament or something. So this this looked like some kind of basically decommissioned tour bus that had then been sold and someone had bought privately and probably turned into some kind of almost um, like, like living space, like, like an RV type of thing. It, it looked like there was, and they had graffitied it. They'd put all sorts of Black Lives Matter graffiti all over it. So there really was a bus driving around in, uh, you know, small town Oregon that had Black Lives Matter graffiti on it and looked like it could probably hold, you know, at least upwards of 30 passengers. So it's driving around town and anyone who's a little bit paranoid because they've now heard from, uh, uh, you know, the, from the federal, or at least from the local law enforcement, who's heard from the federal law enforcement that Antifa is coming to town to burn down our downtown. Now they're seeing this bus driving around town. And so quite understandably, I think their mind goes to, oh, here it is. Here we have 30 or 50, you know, radical Antifa protesters who've come down from Portland or Eugene or wherever. Um, but, that, but that's a reasonable conclusion to draw. It, it really is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost it, it, like that bus was intent. Now, I didn't see the bus, but I remember reading on local social media about that. You know, here in town, we have different pages. It sounds yeah. to me almost like somebody had created this to be a bus of terror to, in, to incite emotions to elicit a response. Yeah. It's, it's completely possible. My best guess is that this was some sort of a, uh, um, hippie who was living in the bus who just because kind of the zeitgeist of the moment was very much about Black Lives Matter because it, it wasn't particularly well done graffiti. It was like literally like someone had just taken, you know, a rattle can and written words on it. There was right. no real talent to it. But, you know, it said like BLM, Black Lives Matter. Um, there, there was there was a bunch of different things written on it. I forget. I have to go dig up the picture. But it really happened. There really, this really was in town, and it really was at Walmart. Of course, by the time I was hearing these rumors from people, the rumor wasn't just, hey, there's a bus that might have Antifa people on it at Walmart. It was like, oh, Klamath PD just arrested eight Antifa rioters at the Walmart. Who knows where that comes from? Um, I don't think it was malicious. I think it was just the, the game of telephone 
happening across right. town. But anyway, because of this, by the time the eat, and I didn't even know about all of this until it was like almost dark. My, my aforementioned friend who's involved in local infrastructure uh, calls me and he's like, Hey, David, have you, have you been downtown today? And I hadn't, I'd been at my house all day. I hadn't even really worked that day. I just, I don't remember what I was, I think, I think it was um, Memorial day or Memorial day weekend. So I wasn't doing anything. I was just at my house and I'm like, no. And he's like, you should come check it out. And uh, I came and checked. I just drove down there. It was kind of, you know, evening, probably seven o'clock. Sun was getting close to setting. And I get down there and there's just hundreds and hundreds of people walking around openly carrying guns. And I was like, wow, this is, I've never seen anything like this. Probably never will again. (laughs) Hopefully not. Um, And so I I was pretty intrigued and he he told me I should come down there and, uh, you know, help him protect his business and stuff. And so I was like, all right, I think, I think I will. And so I went home, put on some body armor, grabbed a rifle, got all geared up told my wife, things are a little weird downtown. I'm going to go check it out. And uh, I uh, went downtown. I didn't think anything was going to happen. But, you know, I put on my body armor, made sure I had a rifle, had some uh, like uh, safety glasses or goggles, just in case things started getting thrown or things got crazy and pepper balls were flying and rubber bullets and stuff. Um, But mostly I just went down there with the intention of talking to people and, um, the lines were pretty clearly delineated. Um, there's a little place in our town. I think it's called Sugarman's Corner. For those of you listening, it's just, oh, I don't know, maybe, a, a 25 yards by 25 yards, kind of, maybe not even that much. It's, it's kind of like a, a storefront's missing. It's just like this, this little patch of space. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a park, like a little miniature park that occupies about the space of like one building wood and it's just kind of like cobblestones and bricks and you know there's like some sitting areas it's just like a little downtown square and it's kind of where a lot of protests end up congregating so this the blm side was filling up the sugarman's corner and uh, it was pretty well packed that's why i'm saying there had to have been there must have been at least 100 people there i mean it was a pretty impressive turnout for a a you know small town pretty red state area like the one we live in um yeah, if, if anyone's wondering how there's a red state area in Oregon, just so you know, basically the only part of Oregon that's blue is the Willamette Valley, the little strip from Eugene to Portland, whatever that 100 mile or 80 mile or so strip of uh, land is. Outside of that, Oregon is pretty conservative and you get east of the Cascades like we are and it is extremely conservative. So they had a good turnout though, 100 plus people probably. And then the police were kind of doing their best to keep the sides separate. Um, there was a, a large police presence down there. I'm sure they had called up a bunch of guys who are not normally on duty because lining every other street around there were hundreds. And I mean, at least four or 500, probably even more than that. Probably, you know, probably quite a bit more than that. As far as the counter protesters go, when I, when I say four or 500, I'm probably talking just about the people who were, openly carrying weapons. And it was interesting because you had people running the gamut from, there was people like me and a few other people like me who, you know, had body armor or war belts, tourniquets, extra magazines who kind of looked like they knew what they were doing. And then there was other guys that would have like a high point, which for those of you listening is just about the cheapest, junkiest pistol you can get costs 180 bucks or whatever. They'd have one of those like stuffed in a back pocket 
or they'd be walking around with like a, like a, you know, like a little 17 HMR squirrel rifle with a giant, you know, four to 12 power scope on it, just like slung awkwardly off their back, pointing at people's faces as they walked by. And I was like, Oh no, you know, nobody got hurt or anything, but big open carry things like that always, um, they always bring out a, a broad array of people, you know, from, from people with military experience or just serious civilian shooting experience who know what they're doing to people who just grab the gun and think they're a badass now. So <laughs> it was interesting, but I spent the night sort of, uh, I was one of the only people that did this. The lines were very clearly delineated. There was, the, the Antifa people here in the and BLM people here in the Sugarman's Corner, and then lining the streets around it was the counter protesters, the sort of right wing side. And um, I spent the night walking back and forth across the street between the two sides, talking to them. Um, I was being very civil, very um, polite, and just kind of pressing both sides a little bit. If anyone wants to watch this, this is on my. Um, my uh, YouTube channel, Buck the System. It's uh, the video is going to be titled something like "BLM Protests in Klamath Falls, Oregon." So um, you can see the conversations that I had there. But just to kind of sum them up, when I was talking to the BLM side, you know, I, I would go up, and sometimes they would initially be a little bit like nervous talking to me because I was, I looked a lot more like I belonged on the other side. I had a, you know, a plate carrier and an AR-15 strapped on me. Um, but they were, so a lot of them weren't really willing to talk, but I did find a few that were willing to talk to me. And when I did, I just kind of, you know, pressed them on some issues. So I, I would be like, oh, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't think what happened to George Floyd was just, I think from what I've seen, it looks like a, there should probably at the very least a manslaughter conviction there, if not a murder conviction. And I would talk to him about, you know, all the other people who I think have been unjustly killed, like Flando Castile, who was basically killed for being a legal concealed carrier uh, by a, a trigger happy cop who got scared of the fact that he legally had a gun or, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure I brought up some white guys who had uh, been killed unjustly and totally ignored by Black Lives Matter. And I, and I talked to them about how, um, you know, I feel like the Black Lives Matter side, the sort of left wing side of this, while I'm glad they oppose police brutality and corruption, I feel like they have a lot of hypocrisy issues. You know, they, they talk about police brutality, but then a lot of times they'll turn around and be in favor of gun control, which has a deeply racist history. And even today, when gun control laws aren't, you know, explicitly racist, they aren't like back in the day where the laws would basically say that freed slaves couldn't own guns. They're not today saying black people can't own guns, but they do end up being disproportionately enforced against black people. So I'd point out, you know, the hypocrisy there. I'd point out, um, you know, what, what I consider to be a pretty uh, big hypocrisy that they're mostly very, uh, you know, pro-abortion or pro-choice since Planned Parenthood was basically started as a eugenics program to um, limit the black population by the very racist uh, Margaret Sanger. So I talked about stuff like that and uh, just, just kind of press them a little bit and see if they could see their hypocrisy. And, and the ones that were willing to talk to me, um, 
you know, we're, we're pretty friendly, but a lot of them, as soon as I'd start bringing some of the stuff up, would just get angry and not talk to me at all. Or they wouldn't have talked to me in the first place because I was carrying a rifle. And, you know, it was, it was really funny when they would tell me something like, why would you be over here with a rifle? You're making us nervous because you're a white man with a gun. And I'd be like, well, that's, that's pretty racist because I'm not even, you know, really against you guys. <laughs> I'm just here trying to make sure that you're actually more consistent and more opposed to police brutality and oppression. And then when I would go talk to the other side, the sort of right wing side of the equation, um, you know, they, they were much, much more willing to talk to me, which I think is generally a characteristic of the right wing side in general. I think right wingers are generally a lot more willing to talk and discuss things than uh, left wingers are. But it also, I'm sure, had something to do with the fact that I would walk up to their side and I'd be wearing a state of Jefferson hat and body armor and an AR-15. So they would at first assume that I'm completely on their side. And then I would start talking to them and I would be like, well, yeah, you know, I, I have some major issues with BLM and Antifa people. I, I, I don't like communists at all. But then I would start asking them and I'd be like, so do you guys support the police? They'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, the thin blue line, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, OK, do you oppose gun control? They'd be like, well, of course. Yeah, well, I got a gun. Look at and I'd be like, well, who do you think enforces gun control laws? And I would just start kind of trying to point out their hypocrisy and get them to see like, you know, <laughs> if you don't like big government, maybe you shouldn't like the people that enable big government and, uh, you know, force their hand and uh, or force our hand and force us to, um, you know, listen to big government. Big government without cops in the military has no teeth. And then I would also bring up the issue of like, OK, well, you know, you support law enforcement. Um I would point out to them, I'd be like, look, I, I don't want, you know, some random cop to die either. So if you don't want cops to get killed in the line of duty, why don't you join me in calling for there to be fewer laws? If we ended the war on drugs and if we, you know, ended traffic stops for any reason that wasn't, holy crap, that guy's like, that guy just like sideswiped that guy and kept driving. You know, it, if the only traffic stops that were ever happening was stopping people who were actually driving dangerously, not just people who were going 12 over the limit completely safely, often with nobody around. And the really the only thing that cops were doing was going after rapists, murderers, and thieves, not drug dealers, not um, you know illegal immigrants, not any of that kind of stuff. If, if we just cut back on the scale of law enforcement's job, not only would we have a smaller government, but far, far, far fewer cops would get shot. I mean, look at how many cops die in traffic stops. They go up, they happen to stop somebody who's smuggling, you know, a, a bunch of cocaine. That person doesn't want to get caught. So they shoot the cops. Like that's a, a fairly common scenario that we see play out. And if you got rid of the war on drugs and you, you scaled back traffic stops, that wouldn't happen. It would save many, many, many law enforcement lives. And it's funny when you start saying stuff like that to these people, how deeply hypocritical they get. It's like, I'm, I'm the one here literally saying, um, why don't we get cops killed less often? Why don't we put cops in less danger? And then they start being like, whoa, you know, we got to support the cops. And just very interesting. It's both sides, in my opinion, are very, very hypocritical. I did not meet very many people that night who weren't um, a partisan hack in some way. Right. Well, so 
You brought up drugs, and there's an interesting correlation, at least from a laws standpoint, that if we, we, if the government removed, or we, this is too much parsing language, if, right. uh, if we removed the restrictive laws on guns, on drugs, one of the knee-jerk reactions is, well, if there's no laws, everyone's going to go do drugs. Well, okay. Well, it's, it's, it reminds me of the uh, Penn Gillette line where, you know, I already murder as much as I want, which is zero. <laughs> so if right. you're not doing drugs now when they're illegal, I, I find that I, I understand the emotion behind it. But I find the notion that if the law changes that now heroin's legal, you're going to run right out and get some, go down to the local right aid and say, give me some heroin. Well, that's really kind of stupid. It's, it is. It's, it's absolutely but, stupid. Like, yeah, I, I don't I don't think you'll ever see that issue with any of the harder drugs, heroin, meth, whatever. People aren't just going to run out and try it now that it's legal. You know, you maybe see a little bit of uh, broader acceptance of things like marijuana as they become legal, but that's specifically because, you know, and marijuana was already obviously extremely widely used when it was illegal. Right. Now that it's pretty much legal here in Oregon, it's, you know, it's not like if, if meth was legalized completely, which I believe it should be. Um, it's not like suddenly people would realize, oh, you know what, meth's not so dangerous. No, it will still have horrible physiological effects on people. Whereas with marijuana, as it gets legalized, people kind of start to realize just as more time goes on, more use goes on, more clear and unpropagandized information comes to light. They start realizing, you know, maybe reefer madness was a lie. Like maybe maybe this stuff actually isn't so dangerous. And so you probably do see a little bit wider, um, uh, you know, acceptance and usage of something like marijuana when it's legalized. But the idea that that applies to everything is crazy. And more importantly, the idea that, that the um, unintended consequences and negative side effects of the war on drugs aren't far, far worse than any of the problems that would come with marijuana well, uh, is, is pretty obvious. I and mean, we saw the exact same thing happen with prohibition. Alcohol obviously can do some bad things to people from dying of alcohol poisoning to just getting drunk and, you know, drunk driving and killing people that way. There's obviously some inherent dangers to alcohol. But when you look at what happened in prohibition and you made alcohol a, a, uh, a black market commodity, and you saw tens of thousands of murders committed in the name of the alcohol trade, and you saw, uh, you know, people dying because the government would leak poisoned alcohol out to uh, try to discourage people from drinking it. Like there's just there's just so many horrible, horrible things that came along with prohibition. I, to me, it doesn't even matter um, whether or not more people would use drugs because pretty much nothing can be worse than the police state and the prohibitions that the war on drugs creates. Right. And I think we've got, you know, more than enough actual evidence, evidence is the wrong words, um, examples to illustrate that the war on drugs has been a colossal failure and 
for the people who are interested in such things about demographics and race, it has affected the black population far more than the white population. So there's at least that as a reason to consider this is not a good idea. Um, Let's, so I mentioned I don't really want to retry the Second Amendment. What did the founders mean? What did right. the founders not mean? Did they, you know, by the way, they had cannons and a puckle gun, but who cares about that? Let's talk about something that really seems to be overlooked, and I think it's a valuable point, which goes to the self-defense part of owning a gun, and that is the moral aspect of defending yourself and your family. Now make the case for owning a gun. Yeah, you know, it's I get this question a lot from people. Um, I'm uh, I, I'm very pro life, and so I get into a lot of uh, internet and sometimes real life discussions with people. And you know, I might be out picketing Planned Parenthood with people from my church or something, and someone will come up and uh, you know take issue with the fact that I'm standing in front of Planned Parenthood with a sign that says, I will adopt your baby (laughs) because that's just such a terrible thing to say. And they'll come up and they'll be berating me and they'll be, and it's, it's amazing how often it comes up. Liberals and progressives really seem to think that this is a good argument. And they will always say something like, well, if you're so pro-life, you know, I, I bet, I bet you're pro-gun. How do you rationalize that? And I always tell them, oh, not only am I pro-gun, I'm carrying a gun right now. And then they're horrified and, you know, sometimes they don't want to talk to me any further, but uh, usually they do. And, and they just think that that is like a massive hypocrisy and a massive um, like act of cognitive dissonance. And so this is basically the way that I explain it to them. You know, this, it's sort of a twofold argument. The first thing I tell them is that, well, one, I'm not murdering anybody with a gun. I carry a gun to protect myself and really more importantly, to protect the people around me. You know, I'm a like a uh, six foot tall, fairly athletic man. Like, I'm not actually that worried about people attacking me. I'm not an easy target. I'm not who people, uh, you know, who a, a mugger would just target on the street. So really, I carry a gun more to protect the people around me. Um, so, I mean, that, that that's like my first argument is just, look, I, I believe that, um, that I have a, a, a duty as a man, as a, a husband, as a father, um, as a friend to protect the people around me. So like I, um, obviously it's not anti-life of me to own a gun. And then usually what they will say is something like, well, okay, I mean, fine, but then why wouldn't you support common sense gun control? You're not a danger with a gun, but if you're not a danger, you have nothing to worry about. So why wouldn't you support stronger background checks or you know universal background checks even for private sales or mental health screenings or required training or or banning ar-15s uh you know you're you can't carry an ar-15 around town to defend yourself to which i would say well i could i just don't because it's inconvenient um <laughs> and, and that you know i do need the ar-15 for other things and for other forms of defense But what I always tell them then is like, well, I don't support any of those things because those things are all antithetical to my pro-life worldview. You cannot enforce gun control. You cannot enact gun control without using violence against innocent people. And what I tell them is like, if I'm pro-life, I can't support raiding somebody's house and potentially killing them because 
what they owned the wrong inanimate object. That's the, the, you know, there's nothing pro-life about that at all. And I'll explain to them how gun laws quite literally get people killed. Philando Castile, who many of them have heard of because he's a, a black guy who was killed in Minneapolis a couple years ago. He died because of gun laws. He was a legal concealed carrier. And according to the concealed carry statutes of that state, he was required to inform an officer when he was pulled over or stopped or whatever, that he has a gun and that he has a permit. And so he did. When he got pulled over, he told them, hey, I have a concealed carry permit. I have a gun. The cop immediately freaked out, drew his gun, started like screaming orders at him, told him to reach for his wallet and uh, and show it to him. And so he did. And then the cop like didn't seem to understand that he was giving conflicting orders. And while he was reaching for his wallet, the cop shoots him and kills him. That would not have ha- that would have been a routine traffic stop, which itself should not have happened, but would have been a routine traffic stop if there was no requirement for Philando Castile to say, "I have a gun." If he if he had just left that, to, hey, you know, the cop doesn't the cop doesn't know he doesn't need to know. The cop would not have been so jumpy; would not have killed him. And then I'll bring up, uh, you know, honestly, even better examples: things like. Ruby Ridge, where the ATF basically entrapped a man, Randy Weaver, into a whole bunch of nonsense by trying to trick him into cutting a shotgun too short. First, they tried to trick him into cutting the barrel below 18 inches, which is the legal limit for shotgun barrel length for no good reason. That's just what it is. Um, And he knew the law enough to know he shouldn't do that. So then the guy asked him to cut the stock off to make it shorter. And basically they ended up tricking him into cutting a shotgun below the, uh, I believe it's 28 inch overall length requirement for a shotgun. It was like three quarters of an inch too short. And then they say, Hey, we got you on federal weapons charges. Now you need to be an informant for us and infiltrate the local uh, skinhead group. And he said, no. And the whole thing precipitated a standoff that got a federal agent killed that got his 14-year-old son killed, uh, and that got his wife killed. So basically, a really asinine gun control. You know, like liberals think that banning 30-round magazines or banning assault weapons would be effective. But, you know, they hardly ever think about the more mundane laws, like a shotgun can't be shorter than 28 inches. Why? Why can't a shotgun be shorter than 28 inches? You can legally have a rifle that's only 26 inches. So why, like, what does it even matter? Very silly. But the point is a law that silly precipitated one of the most infamous standoffs in, you know, American law enforcement history that killed three people totally unnecessarily. Like none of these people had to die, but gun control got them killed. And then I point out, you know, how racist gun control is and how 50% of all these federal gun laws that these liberals want end up getting enforced against black people. So that that's sort of the argument that I make as to how guns and firearm ownership and being anti, most importantly, being anti-gun control is a pro-life stance. You're friends with Foe, the philosopher, and she posts pretty frequently yeah. uh, about the times guns are used in self-defense. And, and the mainstream media 
is perfectly happy to not even know that that happens. Uh, so <laughs> you you talked about a little bit, but just let's focus again on uh, for a minute on the the difference. So I guess we're bringing in two issues here. One is that there's a guy or a person at home at home who has a gun and a criminal who comes in and has a gun. Now, gun control clearly didn't do anything to stop the criminal from getting the gun, so that's useless right. to begin with. So now we have a situation where if something's going to happen, harm is going to happen to somebody. So if you're... Actually, not well, necessarily. Well, no, I'm, 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 would, I'm would, making the worst-case scenario that, that right, right. not necessarily is possible, but... I'm, I'm trying to, to make this as emotionally charged as I can because I'm, I want to help. I can't do anything for the listener, but I want to help illuminate a situation where here we are. We have a, a homeowner at home who is a gun owner. And we're going to complicate this in just a minute with the new Oregon law. And we have a criminal who, <laughs> by the very nature of what a criminal does, isn't interested in what the law says. So that seems like a case for that's a moral case for having a gun for being a gun owner. You're defending your home, you're defending yep. your property, you're defending the lives of the people in your home from somebody who doesn't value at least the sanctity of the door or the value <laughs> or, or your property and it might get to the point where that, that criminal values the lives of the people in that house so little because he values the property so much. So I've sort of made the case, but can you, can you support that as a moral use for guns? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that most people recognize that if it comes down to it, to you know you or a criminal, you obviously want to protect yourself and or your family before them. Um, it, it is kind of amazing to me, though, how often I run into people, usually liberals, and, and I know for a fact these people would not hesitate to defend themselves if they really had to, but they'll say things like, um, oh, well, well, someone doesn't deserve to die just for breaking into your house. And it's like, yeah, they do. Like, I have no, you know, Maybe they are just there to to steal 50 bucks and, and, and get out because they're starving. But I don't know that. For all I know, if they're breaking into my house, they're there to murder somebody, you know, kidnap a child, rape someone. Like, you, you have to expect the worst when someone won't even, um, yeah, res respect the sanctity of someone's own private property. But e even to those people, what I will often say, and, and what I was kind of hinting at a second ago, one of the great things about guns is that they are such a such an incredible defensive tool. You often don't even need to actually use them to um, is to defend yourself with them. You know, a lot of times if someone is trying to break through your window and they look in and see that you've got a gun pointed at them, they will just back off and run away. And now you have without any violence, without any bloodshed you have completely diffused the situation and that's what i often will tell people is that firearms allow you to 
diffuse situations that would otherwise require violence. You know, someone's a lot less likely if they're invading my home and I come out with a baseball bat, they're a lot less likely to back down than if I come out with a gun, which if they, if, you know, if I have a gun and they come in, maybe they'll run away or maybe I'll just hold them at gunpoint until the police can show up and arrest them. With a baseball bat, I'm probably going to have to beat somebody to death and it's going to be very violent. Like that's just, that's just kind of the, the, the nature of those weapons. And so because of this, a lot of people don't realize just how often guns are used defensively. There is this very common claim uh, that is made by a lot of liberals and it, it usually goes something along the lines of you are X number more likely to uh, have yourself or a loved one in your home die by a firearm than, uh, than you are to defend yourself with a firearm. And it sounds like a very scary statistic. It's usually, you know, something in the vicinity of like, um, you're like 60 times more likely to have somebody in your household die by, by a gun that your household owns than you are to defend yourself. The problem is that it, this is a, a deeply, deeply, deeply misleading statistic. Basically, what they're doing is they are taking the number of suicides that happen. You know, they, they kind of phrase it to make it sound like, this could easily just be your child gets a hold of the gun and, and kills themselves on accident, or you're cleaning a gun and you're an idiot and so you didn't clear it properly, or you're messing around with it and negligently discharge and accidentally shoot your wife through the wall. The thing is, th those are extremely rare things. I mean, those are obviously tragic things when they happen, but we're talking maybe a few hundred people across the whole country die in those ways every year. Whereas with suicides, you know, oftentimes leftists will say, oh, there's there's 35,000 gun deaths a year. And it's like, well, sure, but two-thirds of those are suicides. So let's, let, let's put that into perspective. So obviously, most suicides happen with a gun that that person owns. So they're not lying when they say that this many people will die by guns that are owned uh, by either themselves or, or a loved one. Uh, but they're kind of scaring you when they're making it sound like these are all just going to be accidents. Meanwhile, what they are comparing that to is not how often guns are used defensively, but simply how often guns are used in justifiable homicides. Um, so there are only about, I, I think it's maybe around 300, 250 to 300 um, justifiable homicides from this is setting aside law enforcement from uh, just regular citizens can, every year. Can you, so, I realize you're not a lawyer, but can you at least give an explanation of what does it mean a justifiable homicide? Right. Okay. So any, any time one human kills another person, it's a homicide uh, where people get messed up is they don't realize that doesn't necessarily mean it's a murder. Murder would specifically be the unjust killing of somebody else. So, you know, if you just go randomly shoot somebody on the street, you should be convicted of murder. That was a murder. But if somebody's breaking into your house and you shoot them and kill them, that is a homicide, but that is a justifiable homicide. That's ruled self-defense. 
you won't get punished for that because you were defending yourself and you had every right to do that. But so obviously there's not that many of those. There's not really that many justifiable homicides every year, a couple hundred, 300 or so. And so what they're doing is they're taking, look, there's this many suicides. And so that is a gun. You know, never mind that when someone kills themselves, they could do it in a thousand different ways. They usually just choose a firearm because it's the most effective and painless uh, and easiest. Um, but it's, it's hardly, you know, the gun killed them. They're killing themselves. But so the leftists will compare how many suicides there are to how many justifiable homicides there are and then say, oh, look, there's so many more. That means that guns are useless at defending people. What they're ignoring is that guns are used to defend people far, 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 far more than they're used in justifiable homicides. They're ignoring the fact that the overwhelming majority of defensive gun uses involve not a single fired shot. And when you start looking at those numbers, you know, how often are guns used defensively? It's sort of hard to even quantify because, you know, what, what is considered a defensive gun use? Um, I killed a mountain lion one time while I was hiking. Does that count as a defensive gun use? Maybe. Um, uh, and, and that's, that's, you know, that's kind of an extreme example, but one that would probably fall through the cracks and never be mentioned in a defensive gun use. Another time I was at a protest and I had a guy pull a knife on me. He didn't like the fact that I had an upside down American flag. He was belligerent. He was, uh, you know, <laughs> he did not like what I was doing. He pulled a knife on me. I threw back my jacket. He was a ways away. He was actually in a car about 15 feet away from me. So it wasn't like he was rushing me. I didn't have to pull my gun, but I threw back my coat and I put my hand on my pistol so he could see it. And I was like, Hey, I'm not here to start a fight. But if you start when I'm going to finish it and his eyes got all big and he's like, oh, no, no, backed off, drove away. That I, is that a defensive gun use? You know, I didn't draw my gun. I didn't point my gun, but I did let him know, hey, I've got a gun. And if you get out of that car with that knife, you're going to die. So I would say that counts as defensive gun use. And that's so the only real way to find out how many defensive gun uses there are isn't to look at crime statistics because you're hardly ever going to see anything there except for justifiable homicides. You need to do interviews and surveys, and you need to you need to talk to a large, uh, you know, representative portion of the population and try to extrapolate some numbers. This is obviously pretty difficult to do, so the estimates you get vary wildly. Most, but most estimates put it at about half a million to two point five million defensive gun uses every year. The absolute lowest estimate I have ever seen um, was from uh, a, a very liberal source. I forget what it was, but it was basically people who didn't like guns. And they, even they estimated, I think, 100,000 a year. And I think even the Obama era Department of Justice estimated something like 400,000 defensive gun uses a year. So it's hard to say exactly what it is. But we pretty much know for certain that there are, at the very least, several hundred thousand defensive gun uses a year, possibly millions. So when when leftists quote that statistic, they're being incredibly disingenuous. And really, even if you put together all suicides, all accidental killings, and, and even, you know, to be fair, even if you included all injuries sustained from firearms uh, that are owned in the home, the number of defensive shootings, far, 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 or not defensive shootings, but defensive gun uses, I should say, since most of them involve 
no fired shots. They far, far uh, outnumber the number of uh, times that guns are used negatively against people within your own home. Um, the, the What I always tell people to kind of give them a metaphor for how bad this argument from the left actually is, I say, you know, this would this would be like saying your car is incredibly dangerous and serves no purpose in your life because, you know, only so many hundreds of people uh, win a professional race every year. You know, only so many people are ever going to win a NASCAR. Only how I don't know how many I don't know how many NASCAR races there are in a year. Let's say there's only 20 NASCAR race winners every year, and there's you know 30,000 people die in car accidents every year. So look at how useless your car is. And it's like, well, no, winning a NASCAR race is not like the ultimate. It's that's not the end all be all of vehicles. My car gets me to work. My car gets me to the grocery store. My car transports me all over the place. And once you start looking at all those other uses for cars and not just, you know, winning a NASCAR race, which is, you know, essentially the equivalent of a justifiable homicide, you look at all these other things, you realize, oh, yeah, actually, when you really weigh, when you do that cost benefit analysis, clearly it makes sense to just have a car and let people drive cars, even though there is some risk to it. Same thing with guns. Sure, guns aren't used that often in justifiable homicides, but they are used to defend people all the time. They're used to hunt. They're used for target practice. There's all these other things that go along with them that um, even if you're purely a pragmatist, you know, and I'm not, I, I believe in gun ownership for philosophical reasons and for ethical and moral reasons. But even if you're purely pragmatic, you really need to look at that and be like, you know, maybe these Maybe these aren't as dangerous as I thought they are. And maybe gun control is nowhere near as justified as I thought it was. Well, so speaking of gun control, recently, our beloved governor ugh, oh boy. signed a law about gun control. And I, I don't know the exact language, but something about... So this is, this is, really, this is the part that really makes, I think leftists love this and reasonable people say this doesn't make any sense where you have to have a lock on or, or some kind of a strap going through the pistol and keep your gun in in the safe and the keys or else so basically you have to make this defensive tool completely inaccessible for on the rare occasion now granted probably rare i don't know i have no idea what the number is of uh, of break-ins, I have. I don't just this not something I pay attention to, but I don't break into homes. I think it's, no one's broken into mine in half a century on the planet. So, based on my very small content of information, it's probably kind of rare. But when it does happen, you don't have the luxury. Oh, hang on, Mister Criminal. Let me uh, let me go find my key, and uh, I'll be back in five minutes. So, right. I think. So one, we would agree that that's kind of stupid, but there's uh, Senator, not not Jeff, the other one, whatever his name is, was uh, having oh, yeah. a did a virtual conversation with some students about stopping gun violence, ending gun violence, and 
So the the first thing that occurred to me, and I don't know why I didn't know this, notice this before, it was the phraseology. We're it's, we're, and this is not this is not a new idea. Lots of people have have commented on it, but we're blaming the gun, as if the gun got up and did its own sense of violence, and not really interested in. So we want to end gun violence. What that really means to me to say is we want to end people getting shot. Okay. I'm not opposed to ending people getting shot. I think that's probably a reasonable thing to pursue. But I think the right focus then is let's focus on people not doing that. Let's focus on now. I suppose there's a lot of reasons. There might be some some mental health issues, and this has come up before, and I don't think it can be easily discounted that there are people who are going to just not necessarily be all together, like the same people who take a, a van and drive it through a crowd of people. That's not a reasonable decision. Normal people don't do those things. So I think normal people who operate vehicles don't drive into people. And if they do that, then we then there are responses to that problem. The people who drive cars have had training. Why aren't we interested? We, oh, okay. Why aren't we more interested in getting gun course training? I remember when I was in elementary, no, no, junior high school in in a northern Michigan town. This was a thing. You you could sign up in school to go to a weekend and get a gun and take a gun course, gun safety course. You could was it like a, it was like a hunter safety kind of thing. Yeah, but but yeah. this this is your gun. This is how you be safe. Mm-hmm. This is how this is a tool to go and was well, go kill people. Well, no, actually, this is a tool to go out. We're going to go hunting and we're going to feed my family. Yeah. So you need to know how to use this tool. Effectively, when I used to train cooks, when I was a teacher at culinary school, boys and not boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, this is your knife kit. You have in your knife kit a 10-inch French knife. It's sharp. If you don't use it correctly, my goodness, you can do some real harm to your fingers. And let me tell you what, there isn't a cooking school student on the planet who hasn't been cut more than once. And... You pay attention. Now, being cut with a knife that you're using and shooting somebody isn't the same, but the point is, and driving a car, there is, there, there is training necessary yeah. in the things that we use. And when they're dangerous, you need to know, you know, this is a stove. This is hot. There is danger in the world. Ignoring training people about how to use the things that are dangerous in the world and then blaming the tool seems really yep. idiotic. So wh- this is an impossible question to answer, so I'm going to ask it anyway. Why did we lose the focus of training people to effectively and safely use their tools? What happened? I think there's a lot of ways you can answer that. One one thing that I would say is that I think that the, um, you know, the powers that be, I don't think they want people to know how to use guns. Uh, you know, certainly not to the level which myself and other people who are very into guns uh, and into defensive shooting and stuff know how to use guns. But um, 
It's it uh, really is funny. Why, like this. Why do you think that's the case? To what end? Well, I think that um, I tend to think that you know America has a lot of problems, but in some ways we are kind of one of the last bastions of freedom in the world. Uh, a lot of countries have it a lot worse. Even countries that you know they'll always be oh well look this country ranks higher on this. Um, some index than America does, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, I think that America is one of the last places that on, at least in the Western world, in the first world, that has a real sort of spirit of rugged individualism. And I think that one of the ways we've been able to hold on to that is because we have the Second Amendment and we have a lot of guns. And, uh, you know, we're kind of the last frontier in the world. Um, I think that there are people that, you know, high level, powerful politicians who recognize that that is a mistake and a a massive inconvenience. I mean, you look at what's gone on in the last year and a half ish with the COVID nonsense and you look at how much power they have seized. But even more than that, how much other countries have seized, you know, Canada is throwing pastors in jail for having church in defiance of COVID lockdowns. Australia is doing crazy stuff like that. All these other, you know, Western first world countries are doing things that would quite literally get politicians and cops shot in America. I mean, America has been bad, but if, if there were multiple pastors in America getting like arrested and thrown in jail as publicly as they are in Canada, I think that there's people that know that that would start a war. So, I mean, ultimately, I, I, I think that a lot of, I think that the most controlling people in the world don't want us to know how to use guns and don't want us to have guns. They, they want a docile, um, disarmed population. But I wouldn't necessarily say that about like every little law that passes, because I think that one of the greatest tools to the, the true authoritarians, you know, the, the real power brokers who kind of control the world are the useful idiots, the local busybodies and Karens who pass all the local laws who, you know, whatever the, the, the Oregon state representatives who pass this, you know, these, these are not, these are not like the great power brokers of the world. These are just, you know, upper middle-class busybodies who also on the side work for uh, work as, um, you know, state congressmen and stuff. So what I was going to say, though, about this law here, that it, it's funny because it, it really education and teaching some gun safety to kids would go a long ways towards accomplishing the goal that they think they're accomplishing by requiring that guns be locked up. And I mean, nobody's going to follow it. I don't think it's gone into effect yet. I'm looking around my my bedroom here and I definitely still have a few guns that are not locked up um, <laughs> and that won't be changing. And thankfully, where we are, I don't think that... Uh, I don't think our sheriff will let those laws even be enforced. We are a second amendment sanctuary County. I sometimes wonder how much that means, but I think we can safely say that um, nobody in Klamath County will be getting arrested for having a firearm that is not locked up in their own house. But what I was going to say is that, you know, I have, uh, I have three kids. I have uh, an eight year old, a three and a half year old and a one and a half year old. So especially the younger two, my, my boys who are toddlers, 
Um, I do need to be like aware of keeping them away from guns. Uh, you know, they're, they're not old enough to really understand gun safety. So I have a lockbox that I keep by my bed that has like a thumbprint. It's like a quick button and a thumbprint scanner. And it has my wife and I's thumbprints in it. And so you can pretty much just touch it and it pops open. And now you have a loaded handgun because obviously a loaded handgun is a pretty dangerous thing to just keep sitting on a bedside table with little kids around, you know, they could just grab that and shoot it. So, you know, a lot of people without the law do things like that just because it's practical and it's safe. Um, but I also keep a rifle by my bedside um, because really, if it comes down to it, I would much rather grab a rifle to defend myself than, than anybody else. And all I do for that, I don't keep it locked up. I just keep the magazine out of it and there's no round in it. I don't, I'm not particularly worried about, you know, my three-year-old being able to stick in a magazine and jack in the bolt, jack in around and actually fire it. By the time he's capable of that, he's old enough for me to have taught him not to do that and actually trust him and know, you know, hey, I'm not going to, maybe you're not old enough. I'm going to give you a gun and tell you to go out shooting by yourself yet, but you're old enough. I can trust you around a gun. Um, so, you know, teaching kids how to, because really all that keeping guns locked up is going to do is keep kids out of them. That's the only thing that it can do. Most gun safes are not going to stop a theft. Most gun safes are, they might stop a quick smash and grab. If a tweaker comes into your house real quick, looking for, you know, some money for a fix, they might pass up the gun safe, but any determined burglar, <laughs> you know, the kind of person who waits until you're out of town, scopes out your house and breaks in, a gun safe won't stop them. Most gun safes are not even actually safes. They are legally considered residential storage containers, I think is the term. And they are only rated to withstand five minutes of ingress with common hand tools, basically like a pry bar and a hammer. Most gun safes, if you tip them over, especially, and all you have is like a pry bar and a hammer, you can break into the you know, with just the strength of a, an average man in a matter of minutes, they really don't stop anything or even, you know, my, my little lock box to keep my kids out of it. It's just thin sheet metal. There's nothing stopping somebody from grabbing the whole thing, picking it up, leaving it and breaking into it. The only purpose it serves is to keep my kids from getting to a loaded handgun. So these storage rules, they're kind of arguing to some degree that, oh, well, they'll keep guns from falling into the wrong hands and keep, um, you know, keep you from, uh, yeah, keep, keep a gun from being stolen and used in a crime. That's not going to happen because it's not going to stop any thefts. And those are a fairly small portion of, you know, gun crimes anyway, you know, guns that were stolen in a home invasion. So all they're really going to do is keep kids from getting into them. And if anything, and we know no one's going to hardly follow this law, so why don't you just go straight to education? Why don't you have a you know a gun safety program in schools so that kids are more likely when they do find a gun to know what to do around it and what not to do around it? Well, that's I think the I think the answer is a political answer, and I don't know that I particularly care for the answer, but I think it is what I, I think it's a it's a power answer. Power over the constituency in any form, in any way they can do it. It also for the base, for Kate's base or whatever governors are doing this. It is the well, I'm doing something. See, 
So I, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's, it's all politics. Bias. I think it's all I think it's all just a show to say, look, I'm doing something, but the unintended consequences of the things that you're doing are not something that the politicians are ready to take responsibility for. Well, and I would also say that <laughs> I think that some of the unintended consequences are things that they want. You know, one of the one of the big responses you'll always hear from people is like, well, if you have nothing to hide, um, you know, why why are you hiding? Like like if, if you have nothing to hide in your car, why aren't you just letting the cops search it? If you have nothing to hide in your home, if you're not a criminal, why are you worried about them passing these laws? What I always say to that with laws like this is, well, there's so many asinine laws. You do have things to hide. You don't know what you have to hide. You know, I am never going to lock up all my guns. I'm always going to have a rifle in the corner (laughs) or several that I can access, be it for those times that I need to, you know, shoot and kill a skunk in my backyard or for those times there's a home invader. I'm always going to have a rifle accessible. Um, And... uh, I do keep my handgun, like a defensive handgun locked up, but also a lot of times because I carry a gun, I take it off at night and just, you know, set it on the windowsill or, or wherever kind of out of reach of my kids and put it back on. I always have guns that you can access easily in my house. Now, if for some reason I become a you know political enemy, I get on Kate Brown's radar. She doesn't like the way I'm talking. She thinks I'm talking a little too seditionistic. Uh, when I talk about the state of Jefferson or whatever, she can get my house raided. And uh, yeah, I do have things to hide because now they've passed this asinine law and they can try to charge me with some kind of crime because I don't have a gun in place or because I don't have my guns locked up. And that, that's, that's a big problem with asinine laws like this. It basically makes it so that, and it's not just these gun laws, you know, the, there's been the, I, I don't know how true it actually is, but there's been people who speculated that everyone commits on average three felonies a day that they don't know about. Right. I don't know how true it is, but I think it's safe to say that any law enforcement who wanted to dig deeply enough into anybody could find them guilty of lawbreaking. Uh, I mean, with things like taxes alone, how easy would it be? To just be like, oh, well, you messed up on your taxes there a little bit. That's tax evasion. There's all sorts of things. 17,000 um, pages of code. You're bound to have broken some code somewhere. Right, right. Especially those of us who are like self-employed and stuff because it gets a little more complicated than just when you have a W-2. It's like, what? who knows? Oh, you weren't supposed to write that off. Well, I don't know. How am I supposed to know what I can and can't write off? Like, it's, it's difficult. But yeah, so w- with all these asinine laws... It just creates so much opportunity for anyone to be charged a crime at any time. If you look hard enough, you can always charge someone with something. Um, you know, and that's why that's why I'm such a big advocate for the, basically the only things that should be illegal are things that are that that create a real and identifiable victim whose life, liberty, or property has been hurt. You sound like Ron Paul. Exactly. <laughs> He's my man. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I think I, I have more, and we can talk a lot about this. But I, I, um, if I can find it, I'm gonna. And I don't know if you saw it. I'm, I don't know if I can find it again. I saw a video, which I don't know what it was made. Congressman Massey 
was speaking about gun control and the lies Democrats used to push for more laws. Now, he mentioned that gun control costs lies, which is a point you brought up, since, you know, this is, this is fairly obvious, although I don't know why people don't think it's a, the criminal doesn't care what the law is or how it reads or what the, what might happen. So, um, and we've kind of addressed that, but I, I think it's, you know, Massey's kind of good on, not kind of, Massey's pretty good on a lot of issues and, and this was a good one that he came up with. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. I want to shift a little bit into a slightly lighter and breezier portion of the show, which is a short, uh, short question answer thing. Sure. Uh, of of the five flavors: salty, sweet, bitter, sour, or umami. Which one do you enjoy the most? <laughs> well, I'll be honest. I've heard of umami a lot in recent years, and I. Don't think I could even tell you <laughs> what flavor it is. You might have to show me sometime. Like what? What is umami? Well, sound like a barbarian. Umami is that sort of earthy mushroominess. It's it's not okay. like where, where you could identify sweet. You know what that is. Umami is sort of how blending of them all. It's sort of kind of like what MSG does. Okay, that that helps a little bit. <laughs> I still feel like a heathen who barely knows what that means. But um, man, I don't know. It's hard for me to pick one flavor because uh, like I, I tend to like things that are like both sweet and salty, but I also really like more savory stuff. Oh, I don't know. What, what, what are the five basic flavors again? <laughs> salty, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. I guess if I had to pick, I'd probably pick sweet. What's your favorite food? Mm, probably either sushi, the raw or the better, or a really good steak. Wow, big difference there. What's your <laughs> least favorite food? Bananas. Bananas are about the only thing that I just despise and will not touch. My kids love them too, <laughs> which is terrible. And I'm, I'm just laughing because there's somebody else who I interviewed who had the exact same answer. <laughs> They're just one of those things that overpowers everything. Like you get a fruit salad and it's been touched by a banana. I don't taste any of the other delicious fruits. All I taste is banana. <laughs> what gets you excited? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. This is going to make me sound like a sociopath. But the thing that gets me most excited is the uh, thinking about the impending collapse. Of or hopefully the impending collapse of everything. <laughs> What turned you off? Ooh. Tyranny. That's why that's why I want the government to collapse. <laughs> what sound do you love? Maybe gunfire. <laughs> what sound do you hate? Hmm. 
as a parent, I feel like it would be like, like a funny thing to say, you know, my, my kids at three in the morning, but my kids are all such good sleepers. I can't really say that without feeling dishonest. So, hmm. I don't know. Maybe, uh, Ooh, police sirens. <laughs> what is your favorite food indulgence? Indulgence. Hmm. I don't know any kind of like really creamy dessert. I, I, I like ice cream quite a bit. I don't eat it all the time, but every now and then I'll like buy some ice cream for my kids and be like, Oh, that was really good. And then for the next few weeks, like I always have ice cream in my freezer. So probably ice cream. <laughs> ice cream is a good answer. Um, this is I sometimes ask if there's books you'd recommend that I'm not really sure. Well, this is maybe my ignorance showing. I don't know if there's a book about, uh, about, Guns that people should read. I don't know. Maybe you do know. Um, but any kind of resources that you can think of that people who are interested in figuring out more about some reasoned arguments, not necessarily change their mind, but informed is good, that they should read. Shoot. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not the biggest <laughs> reader. Um, I mean, I read all the time, but it's always like current events and news and stuff. I'm not very good at reading books, at least not since I got out of the army. <laughs> I used to have a lot more time to read books than I would. Um, I hate, I hate to self promote, but my YouTube channel is a pretty good resource talking about uh, gun laws and gun rights and stuff. Probably though, the best resource for like news on gun rights and current um, like current legislation that's pending and, and that kind of stuff. Probably the absolute best resource for that is a YouTube channel uh, from a guy named Reno May. He uh, lives in California. He's a, a big gun enthusiast. And um, he talks a lot about the tyranny of California's gun laws, but also federal stuff. So he's kind of, he, he's probably the best source on the internet for just aggregating, like, here's a law that's possibly going to pass. And here's what that would mean for you. So... Cool. I'd highly recommend checking right. it out. I can't think of many like text sources. But. Okay. Well, I will put a link I mentioned before, a link to Buck the System on the show notes page. And if I can find Reno May, I'll put a link for that Absolutely. as well. I should also say yeah. if you're if you're in Oregon in particular, uh, the Oregon Firearms Federation is the place to go to for news about gun rights in Oregon specifically. Very good. Well, I haven't even found that one, so that's news to me. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time this midday to us now. <laughs> so I appreciate you taking the time out and that we finally got this tech to work. Yes. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, happy to be on. No, um, right. now, now that we know how to make it work, I'm happy to come on again sometime too. Cool. Um, and next time we'll have to make sure that we can figure out how to do it in the, uh, in the armory. Yes. Yes. Especially if you ever want to broadcast the video because it's a lot cooler than yeah, sitting in front or, of my wife's or, closet. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much again. Have a great rest of the morning. And All right, folks, that's going to do it. David's YouTube channel will be linked on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 144. I did find a link for Reno May, and that's on the show notes page too, but it links to Odyssey, not YouTube. I mentioned my cookbook at the top of the show. 
If dad is more a smoker or a grill guy, check out the fantastic salts and spice rubs and mixes at Savory Spice. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash savory spice to shop for Father's Day. Please share this episode on your social media feeds and like it when it shows up on your feed. Also, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. If you like and enjoy the show, I would appreciate your support at culinarylibertarian.com slash support. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.